Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast, Sabbath School from Home. We're glad you can be here with us. My name is Cameron, I live in Launceston, Tasmania, just passing the shortest day of the year. Days starting to get longer, no warmer yet, but uh, I guess everything in good time. G'day, I'm Ken, uh, I'm also in Launceston. Hello, I'm Luke, uh, I'm joining today from hot and humid Hong Kong. And I'm Lachlan, I'm in Sydney. I noticed during the week that our 13th Sabbath School from Home episode coincided with the 13th and final week of quarter two's Sabbath School pamphlet, which means that this week is the start of a new Sabbath School lesson quarter. And I had a flick through it. It's on the topic of making friends for God, of of witnessing and evangelizing. And I think that we can have a bit of fun trying something slightly different from what we have been doing. Not that the Psalms are exhausted. There's plenty of interesting and valuable material there. And we may find we turn back to the Psalms on occasion. But this time, I thought that we, we might move and have a look at a passage from the book of Isaiah, which is picked up in this week's Sabbath School lesson, and just see... What, what sense we can make of it. I already have some questions in my mind from looking through it earlier and, uh, and see if we can enjoy this conversation. So the passage that we are going to look at is Isaiah chapter 49, and we'll focus in on the first seven verses. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him? For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So, Locke, which which of these verses is the one picked up by the lesson quarterly? Well, the one picked up is verse 6, which Luke read. Uh, and specifically the second half of verse 6, which, which is about making you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So we can have a little bit of a look at that verse in the context of, of what we're feeling from, from the, the rest of this passage. And I guess I should make one comment. I, I don't like... Um, uh, it's, always, it's always hard in a book like this part of Isaiah to work out where to start and where to stop. I don't like just following strictly on the chapter and verse divisions because, of course, when Isaiah was first written, there were no chapter divisions. And if you try and avoid those chapter divisions and look for thematic changes and sort of broad stroke paragraph or section changes, 
this part of Isaiah just flows on and on and washes over you in an amazing uh, just flow of, of language and imagery. But there are a, a sort of division that's imposed by a repeated phrase of says the Lord. So if you notice in verse 8, just after where we stopped, thus says the Lord. And then at the start of chapter 50, thus says the Lord. It's almost as if these are separate sayings of the Lord. And that's why on this occasion we're going we're gonna to focus in on just those first seven verses. If I can stop, uh, Locke, you there. The last verse of the preceding chapter, 48, is one I've heard often. There's no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And I've had this quoted to me when I've complained about being busy at work. <laughs> well, well, I guess we should check to see whether the the passage we just read out informs <laughs> that saying. You're right, I've heard it many times. Of course, I don't think the converse is true. I don't think... Uh, so wicked people have no rest. I don't think that means that if you have no rest, you are wicked. But I don't think I don't think our listeners will be interested in the finer points of distinction between converses and contrapositives. So we might cut that out in the edit. Um, <laughs> but but I, I am I could keep listening. <laughs> so what what are you feeling? I guess the the first question is, who is this talking about? It's talking about the prophet Isaiah, isn't it? I thought it was the prophet Isaiah. I, well, I don't. Um... I don't disagree with you. What's the justification for for that? Oh, but now I'm reading it. I'm not so sure. But I, you know, Isaiah begins with that great passage. You know, um, who shall I send? Um, here I am, Lord, send me. And the vision that Isaiah has. Um, and so I assumed that this was a passage about about God addressing Isaiah and saying that you and you know you're not just going to restore the tribes of Jacob and and bring those of Israel back, but you're going to be a light to the Gentiles as well. But now I'm second-guessing myself because in the opening verses it, it is addressed to you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Oh, no, before I was born, the Lord called me. Yes. No, it is the prophet Isaiah. It is in first yeah. person. So it's the mm. author of, of this. Well, in, in verse 3, uh, it says, He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Um, uh, so, in fact... Uh, and if one goes over to verse 6, which is the one that we're going to focus on, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Um, so is it Isaiah or is it uh, indeed Israel? But, but the first half of verse 6 seems to suggest that it's not Israel because this the person to whom it's addressed will bring back those of Israel that God has kept. He's, he's going to restore Israel. Um, so <laughs> Israel is is at various places identified as the agent and the thing being acted upon in other places. Mm. So you you are correct to to find this a difficult question to answer. I, I wasn't specifically asking it as a trick question. I'm genuinely interested to to see what what the feeling is. You you have exactly retraced my thoughts as I read through this. Um, a little earlier in preparation for this recording, I found myself thinking it's it's definitely about Isaiah, and then thinking, well, it seems to be saying that it's Israel. 
And you may not be too surprised to learn that a lot of commentators see this as a very clear messianic prophecy and that it's, it's really talking about Jesus uh, because Jesus was named by the angel Gabriel before he was born. Uh, his mother was instructed what name he should have. And he is the one who is God's servant, who labors to bring restoration to Israel mm. and salvation to the nations. Um, and he is the one who is the redeemer of Israel. Despised in verse and seven. abhorred. Despised and abhorred and yet lifted up because the mm. kings and princes shall prostrate themselves before him because of the Lord who is faithful. So um, I'm not saying that you, you must agree with me, but there, there does seem to be a considerable opinion out there that, that this is very messianic in tone. I reckon Isaiah has some of the clearest pictures. We've commented previously about um, some fairly ambiguous messianic prophecies in terms of what, what sort of person the Messiah would be. You know, a lot of the prophecies refer to the Messiah as a military ruler. But, but the theme in Isaiah of God's appointed being despised and rejected, it, it turns up in, in several places. So I think that Isaiah had perhaps a bit more clarity in his vision of what it meant to to be one of God's special appointed, or perhaps even specifically the special appointed, and then perhaps some of the other prophets did. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting comment, Cam. It it is true that some of the clearest messianic images we have come from Isaiah. I think Jesus invokes a number of them in application to himself. And in, in indeed. Um, is this a reference uh, not just to the Messiah, but to the uh, Israel, the the um, uh, the children of Abraham, uh, and the the new Israel after uh, the Messiah, uh, which includes uh, the Gentiles? So the ideal uh, Israel is how the um, NIV Study Bible refers to it, so that it's it's not the national Israel failed, but the uh, children uh, of Israel who have their heritage through uh, the Messiah um, are those who will be a light for the Gentiles and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's an interesting connection through to the way that this verse is invoked in Acts, where it's quoted by Paul, in fact. Maybe we'll turn there really soon. An interesting comment that I did read was that if you read in verse 6, the uh, it speaks of the restoration of Israel, but a light and salvation, a light for the nations and salvation reaching the ends of the earth. There, there is almost in there a layering, isn't there, where you've got this Old Testament picture where the Israelites don't have everything quite right, but they have been given some light. So they they are receiving a restoration of what they should be, and the Gentile nations are receiving a light, because because the Israelites have already received some light. There, there was that sort of idea coming out. It's maybe, it's maybe more of a poetic structure than a deep sociological commentary. Well, the, the light to the Gentiles is an interesting um, uh, is an interesting concept to pick up on because uh, over I think it's in Luke chapter two. In verse 32, um, uh, you'll see um, 
this reference, um, uh, starting at 29, Simeon took him in his arms, and this is took Jesus in his arms, uh, and praised God, saying, Master, now you're dismissing your servant in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And note in verse 6 there that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And Simeon sees this salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So again, that creates a very clear messianic um, uh, illusion um, that's picked up uh, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 32. Well, the the connection, the New Testament connection that was identified in this week's Sabbath school lesson was in the book of Acts which which we understand to be quite connected to the book of Luke. So I'm really interested that you that you found that in Luke. In Acts 13, the second part, we read about Paul and Barnabas at Antioch. And starting in verse 44, the whole city almost gathers to hear the word of the Lord as proclaimed by Paul and Barnabas. And the Jews see the crowds and they're filled with jealousy and they begin to contradict what was spoken by Paul. And I'll pick it up here in verse 46 of Acts 13. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Of eternal life, Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Oh dear, Locke, that's a, that's a difficult passage. As many as were appointed to eternal life. Or the NRSV, as many as had been destined for eternal life became believers. Uh, is that where we're going with this lesson, is it now, Lachlan? Did we, will we hijack it for an argument about predestination? Yeah, I, I would encourage us to avoid that one at the, at the moment. Well, it's mostly irrelevant. You're right. It's mostly irrelevant, Locke, anyway, because if we are predestined to have a discussion on predestination, it will happen whatever we, whatever we decide to do or think we're deciding. Yeah. But if predestination isn't the case, then well, we probably won't. If we're predestined to have a discussion on predestination, I might be predestined to leave the conversation early. <laughs> but you might have no choice about Make, it. Well, I might not. Make of that oh, what you will. Ah, <laughs> um, uh, well, let's let's rein ourselves in back to. Okay. I I would like to focus in on on Paul's invocation in verse forty-seven. For so the Lord has commanded us. Yeah. So, uh, first question is: Do do you feel that is resonant with the way you felt Isaiah forty nine verse six when we read through that passage? Did did you sense in that a command? It was more a prediction, it seemed to me. I I feel it's very resonant with Paul's character and personality. Yes, Paul. Paul a very interesting character. He wasn't very diplomatic in that passage. You read Locke. What what did he say about the Jews? Well, you know, yeah. God, God gave you the scriptures, but if if you're, you know, going to cast it aside and give up your chance on eternal life, well, so be it. Yeah, he, serves you jolly well, ESV, right? He basically <laughs> says, "Well, we had to, we had to offer you salvation first. We didn't have a choice. We didn't want to, 
but since you've rejected it, now we can go and talk to the Gentiles who we actually want to talk to. That's basically yeah. what he's saying in 46. Uh, he and Barnabas, according to the exact yeah. text. Uh, which is, is a pretty confronting uh, statement to make. It's like, I knew you guys would ignore us, so thank you for confirming yeah. that. Now I'm going to go talk to the Gentiles. I, I wonder whether he really was saying, look, the ideal, uh, Jesus was a Jew. Uh, he was of the nation mm-hmm. of Israel. The ideal uh, would have been that the nation of Israel embrace uh, the Messiah, uh, the true Messiah, and uh, and through is the Messiah through Israel uh, would save uh, the world, including the Gentiles. Uh, but that's not how that's not how it's worked out, uh, and the Gentiles aren't going to miss out just because you didn't pull your weight. I saw a comedian or a magician actually on YouTube once. As part of his act, he was describing a story where he was walking down the street and someone asked him for $5. And he said that he, uh, I don't have any money on me. And, and this person said, what, aren't you a good Christian? And the man said, well, um, I didn't answer him at the time, but I should have really because he was correct. I'm not a good Christian. I'm a Jew, <laughs> which is true. He said, and, and Jews are not good Christians except for one. And he was the best. (laughs) Uh, Oh, that's very good. (laughs) Well, it is really interesting in the context of this passage in Acts. So what's happened just before uh, the the point where we met the story is that Paul and Barnabas have been been preaching in the synagogue. And the the people there who in, in verse 43 are clearly Jews and devout converts to Judaism. They like what Paul's been saying, and they follow Paul and Barnabas, and they urge them to come and speak speak the next Sabbath. But what happens, that's where we joined mm. the story. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city turned up to hear the word of the Lord, and the Jews sort of thought, well, hang they on a minute. Jealous. This is special for us. And Paul does lay into them. In the message, it's great. Um, it says, that, but seeing that you want to be no part of it, you've made it quite clear that you have no taste or inclination for eternal life. The door is open to all the outsiders. So he really well, this does. Is, this is Christ's parable, isn't it? About the the wedding feast. The wedding feast. Going, going out in the highways and the byways and commanding people that may come in. Just a side note on the story surrounding this. The bit after um, this particular passage, down verse 49, 50, is quite remarkable as well. It says in the New King James Version, the language is, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. Um, and then they shook off the dust from their feet against them. There's an allusion to Matthew ten fourteen. there, isn't there? Um, where yeah. Jesus sends his disciples out and tells them, well, if they don't, if they don't accept you, shake the dust off your feet. Hmm. I just find it fascinating that it's the devout and prominent women who are first stirred up against them, and then the chief men of the city. Um, the mm. devout and prominent women are obviously uh, influential enough to to be significant. Is it creating a contrast between uh, devout women and the leading men? So is there the leading men aren't necessarily devout, uh, but the women are. Uh, <laughs> Well, I was wondering if it had some sort of connection to Paul's comments about whether or not women should be silent, but that may be unfair. 
It seems he would definitely have thought these particular women should be quiet. Yeah, I mean, Paul has the the um benefit of being right, at least, I guess, in our eyes or in his eyes, which is an enormously beneficial thing to have. Because if he was not in the right, you'd have to say he's acting very arrogantly, and I'm sure he would have been perceived that way. Uh, hence the persecution. If he was at church, people would have said about Paul, um, they would have said, uh, if he was a member of an Adventist church, Oh, look, he's got some good ideas. He tends to get a bit carried away, and he's a very difficult person to get along with. <laughs> he's one of those difficult people. You know, we try and accommodate him, you know, to a point, but if it gets too much, we'll have to ask him to leave. Well, it does remind me of those questions that uh, youth pastors would occasionally ask us back in the day about, you know, if Jesus, or indeed if any of the prophets showed up in your church would you recognize them would you welcome them how would you treat them really um it's that sort of mm. vibe um mm. and it is a good it is a good question because because the prophets and jesus who was the you know the one who the prophets were all leading up to were the sort of consummate outsiders they stood outside the religious system um, and they said a lot of very confrontational, and did a lot of very confrontational things. Paul, Paul's in an interesting case, though, isn't he? Because he's really a priest-turned-prophet, being a Pharisee. Yes, Paul Paul has a history of, of, of well, he has a, a sort of understanding of both worlds. Getting back to your question, Locke, about whether or not Paul's uh, interpreting this passage correctly, he... he, he quotes this passage from Isaiah as a commandment. Um, I, don't, it's, I don't read it as a commandment in the passage of Isaiah. And in fact, it's not a commandment for the person receiving the message to do anything. It is an affirmation of what God will do in and through them. And if you continue reading the passage, it's full of some beautiful imagery uh, about everything. It's all the things that God will do. God will turn mountains into roads and highways will be raised up. Uh you know, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she is born? Well, even if she could, I couldn't. That's God couldn't forget us. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. The whole passage is, is a declaration uh, of all the things that God will do. Well, Cam, that's a, that raises a really interesting question that I have. At least, it's interesting to me. So, you said you don't read it as a commandment, but Paul does read it as a commandment. Um, when when he quotes it uh, later on in Acts, so it makes me wonder, what is a commandment? Because, you know, if I say such and such will be, you know, uh, my daughter will go to sleep at nine, uh, that that is a form of self delusion. I have no power to make that happen, uh, and it isn't going to. Uh, but if God says she shall sleep at nine, not only will she sleep at nine, but is that not just because God says it, does that not make it a commandment? Is that your prayer, Luke? Is it also a prayer? Very much so. Every, every night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, and I pray yes. in vain. I, I think that's an interesting point, though, because there is a sense in which uh, a prediction can become a, a, a commandment when it, the time is right for action uh, to implement, uh, to bring that prediction about. Uh, Jesus said, um, you don't you know I have to be about my father's business. Uh, well, what is his father's business? 
uh, here is part of that father, his father's business. Uh, doing these things, bringing these things about that God has said will happen. Uh, so in, in, in that sense, um, uh, for Paul's time, that prediction has become uh, his motivation and his command. Can it, can it just be that Paul feels impressed to adopt this statement as a command? I mean, the Bible speaks to us in different ways at different times. I was listening on the radio um, uh, where they were talking about Verdi, the uh, Italian composer, who wrote an opera about the Babylonian captivity. And in it, there is a chorus. It's, it's a really famous work. It's the chorus of the Hebrew slaves. At that time that he wrote it, um, Italy was under an oppressive rule that they had been conquered effectively. And, and this song became a massive focal point for um, civil unrest in his society. This chorus of the Hebrew slaves un under an oppressive Babylonian regime um, spoke to them in a really person personal way. I, I, I recall, although I might have this wrong, but I think that the song may have been banned or its performance was very frowned upon um, by the ruling nation. And But th these people saw in that song uh, themselves. None of them imagined that they were actually in Babylon. They all knew they were in Italy. Uh, but there was something about the essential meaning that they identified with very strongly. Hmm. Uh, so it seems to me that that Paul may not have even been concerned really about whether he was quoting this passage in its original context. He may have just been saying, look, this this passage of which you are aware is something that I feel very compelled compelled to to obey yeah he, he may have been using it you know the same way you'd use any sort of idiom or or commonly understood cultural reference it's it's a reference that that all well you know all devout jews would know it's interesting because we um uh, we often see it, this this is the converse or is it a Contrapositive. Um, uh, anyway, it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a genuine converse. Um, we often see the statements that Jesus makes uh, as being commandments of things for us to do. Uh, when a close look at them will often indicate that they are simply statements about how the world works and how things happen, uh, and in a sense either. Um, predictions or um, uh, statements about uh, rules of life uh, that apply uh, and not so much commands. So in, in this way is this prediction uh, being a, a converse of the, uh, or is this is Paul's interpretation of the command, in, if you like, the converse of how we often see what Jesus says. No, I think I can see what you're trying to say there, Ken. And I was going to make a similar comment. Paul is making his statements in the post-Jesus Christ era. And that is completely informing what he's doing when he, the ideas, the, the resonances that he's noticing. Uh, just to pick one thing, for example, go to the end of Isaiah 49. We've been just reading the start of Isaiah 49, and it speaks of salvation reaching all of the Gentile nations. But if you come to the end of Isaiah 49, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, oh, no. and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. 
um, then all flesh will know that I am the Lord, your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. I'm glad that, that Paul didn't quote that bit. Yeah, that <laughs> uh, that is sitting there just a few a few verses away. But what Paul is doing is he's saying, ah, we've just we've just had our eyes opened. And Jesus has made me realize that one of these, the salvation reaching the ends of the earth is extremely resonant with the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. And one of them, which is the oppressors eating their own flesh, um, is not resonant with the life and teachings of this of this amazing revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is really informing Paul's situation. Even then, Locke, the, 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 I, I don't find the oppressors eating their own flesh to be quite as distasteful to New Testament eyes anyway. Um, that I mean, one of the themes across all of this in Isaiah is that God sticks up for powerless people. If you looked at contemporary gods of contemporary nations and, and the Greek gods, for instance, contemporary to Paul, um, they were very good at cutting proud people down to size, but they certainly didn't lift up any humble people. Mm. So, so there is something incredibly novel about this theme that, that God sticks up for, for those. Um, and, and I mean, this whole statement, this whole chapter, sorry, is, is a statement of God's intent and his capacity and his desire for helping people across uh, across national boundaries, cultural boundaries, um, and specifically helping people who are being hard done by. I guess that, that leads us fairly neatly to to a somewhat concluding sort of question to think about, which would be, so what are we going to do with these passages? I mean, obviously, we can read both of them, and we are in a third context that's different from either of them. I wasn't ready for a concluding question yet because I wanted to go back to another part. But it's interesting because I think the other part that I wanted to go back to leads nicely into a concluding answer uh, to the question, what are we going to do? I want to go back to the first part of verse 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant. Um, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring those of Israel back, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. So it is too small a thing for you to be my servant. I want to just to pick up on that because I want to go over then to John chapter 15. Um, and this is where Jesus is saying he's the vine. And then in verse 12, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Uh, you're my friends, he says if you do what I command you. And verse 15, I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I've heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another. I wonder whether that might be an answer to that concluding question. Uh, too small to be a servant. I'm calling you to be a friend. Uh, and you know what that involves. Love one another. Hmm. Hmm. I think that's an excellent, yeah, I like an that excellent answer. I, I like that. Your question has a, has a different... Um, led to a different question in my mind. Look, this whole um, this whole quarter is on witnessing, and this week's 
uh, cauteries on why we witness. And the truth is that I don't have the same level of brash brashness um, that Paul had. I don't think I am by personality a similar sort of person. I'm certainly in a very different cultural context. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that a, the difference between a pagan and a modern atheist is much larger than the difference between a virgin and a, someone divorced. That we, we don't live in a pre-Christian, we live in a post-Christian world. Um, and, and one of the things I generally struggle with is, is indeed how do we interpret all of the commandments? Um, how, how, how do I reconcile the, the explicit commands that I should be witnessing with my own uh, concerns or, or questions about the faith, my own worries about the church that I'm a part of, um, my own worries about myself, and um, I hope this is something we can address more in, in coming episodes. Uh, as an indication, and uh, this is only short, this, this perfectly, to me, describes the problem I have experience, and I suspect other people experience when it comes to witnessing. This is an excerpt from Adrian Plus's fictional diary. Uh, went to church today. Had a wonderful talk on witnessing by Edwin. Very good. Made you want to go straight out and witness to somebody. I drifted off into a pleasant daydream in which I began to preach in the street and ended up with a huge crowd of people, all repenting in tears and being healed of their sickness just by the touch of my hand. Very near to tears myself during the chorus that followed, as I pictured myself addressing vast assemblies of needy people throughout the world. I came to with a shock as I realised that Edwin was asking for people to actually volunteer to do some actual street evangelism next Friday. I sat as low down in my seat as I could, trying to look like someone whose earnest desire to evangelise has been thwarted by a previous appointment. <laughs> Is that the passage also, Cam, where um, he decides that he will go and do the uh, street witnessing if a... Uh, a, a mm, got to be careful. Um, but I think Adrian Plass refers to it in this way. If a dwarf dressed in a Japanese admiral's uniform comes and knocks on the door. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's something like that. He, he lays a fleece that's that he's trying to make it hard. But, I mean, it is... It is difficult. One one thing that's very obvious is um, in Isaiah, the Lord is saying to whoever is the, the recipient of the message, look, I am going to do this. And um, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to set you as a light to the nations. And I'm going to I'm going to comfort people like a mother comforting a child. I'm going to, you know, raise up the mountains, make the road straight. I'm, I'm just going to do all this stuff. And I think it's it's clear that in the life of Paul, he did. In my life, he hasn't yet. Uh, you might be surprised. Well, I might I be think... surprised. But but this is, I think, the conundrum. To what extent does the command to witness, to what extent, I mean, it has to be something, God has to give us something worth sharing. Uh, and the tools, the means, the opportunity, I don't think it's something that we can do on our own. And And we are told elsewhere in the Bible that we don't all have the same job within the church. We all have different gifts. And I have a very difficult time reconciling all of these ideas in, into a functional model of what witnessing should look like. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably a fairly widespread um, sort of question. 
And I would encourage any listeners with uh, with advice for Cameron to to write it to Sabbath School at Home, no, to Sabbath School from Home at Gmail dot com. Let's let's get this poor guy sorted out, and and we'll see if we can navigate some of these over the coming episodes. I think that this could be a a fairly useful and interesting exploration of some of these themes. And I guess uh, in closing, I would recommend that based on our study today we we set at least a bar to to pledge ourselves not to be like the jews who thrust aside god's word and judge ourselves unworthy of eternal life fundamentally fundamentally because they were jealous of a big crowd yeah so i think that that's a fairly uh a fairly accessible thing that we can that we can already agree on and some of the more nuanced details of how we can apply some of this stuff, how, how we can read it, understand it, apply it in our situation, removed from both Isaiah and Paul, I, I suspect we will have to wait and resolve, attempt to resolve that in coming Sounds episodes. Sounds good. Mm. I would say that there's, there is a lot in the prophets Cam, on, on, on perhaps what you're looking for, which is, is a definition of witnessing or a definition of the, that light for the whole world that is maybe broader than our church culture makes it seem to be. You encourage me, Luke. I think that definition does exist in the Bible. If we talk about this topic long enough, we'll explore it. I hope so. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, we're really, we're really glad that you've been able to share this discussion with us. We're always interested in comments that are sent in. Uh, we are interested to know whether, whether, whether you're, whether we've missed your favourite psalm, and you really were hoping that we would do something that we haven't. In which case, we can we can address it in a future episode, or whether you're glad that we're following the quarter more closely. Uh, most of all, though. As I said, we're glad that you've been here with us and we do hope that as we uh, discuss things together and journey together on our Christian walk that we can all learn something. And uh, we certainly anticipate that over the, the coming weeks as we, as we look at this Sabbath School discussion.